Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's like the third time, and I'm happy to chat with you. Yeah, good to see you. Yeah. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but there's obviously a lot of stuff that comes up in the whole 60s and 70s and from the counterculture movement, just everything that's going on. Even, I mean, you could add the 50s in there as well, too, from censorship and film to so much that's going on. I mean, do you think that, like, I wouldn't call it necessarily a conspiratorial subject, but do you think it's opened you up to more malicious behavior of the what we'd call the establishment that people might label conspiracy like people don't know what COINTELPRO is you mentioned that they go that sounds like a conspiracy and toss their hands up but it's like there's a whole area that the academic community hasn't really talked about or focused in in depth to as much as a researcher or someone has with some of the 50s 60s and 70s so i'm curious do you have a conspiracy line and also do you think that you are more critical of the government because you know they do things in a very drastic sense like programs like COINTELPRO i i do have <clears throat> i guess what you say call a conspiracy line um some things well, Michael Perenni, he's a he's a guy. He's retired. <clears throat> he used to be a philosophy professor at University of at University of Vermont, and then out in California. And um, he's written a few books. And one of my favorite lines of his that kind of describes my take on it too. He says there are conspiracies. He says there are like a bunch of usually men in in rooms making decisions about our life to protect their. To protect to protect their profits and their property, et cetera, et cetera, and their power. And he said, however, it's not those conspiracies are just what they are, is they're part of what what I would call it the greater conspiracy of um well, capitalism, basically, because it I would just see it as a uh when when your entire when the the way you operate the primary modus operandi is to pursue as much profit as you can. That's going to create a situation where you're going to do things that make sure that that happens. And that's, that's the foundation of our, our, our pol political and culture, well, political society and economic society, obviously. And so obviously it bleeds over into culture and it bleeds over into daily life of everybody, whether you're wealthy or poor or somewhere in between. And so there are groups of people who operate, you know, they could be a bunch of CEOs, they could be a bunch of, you know, boards, you know, take a look at a college, for example, the board of trustees at most colleges, whether they're public or private, um, or religious oriented or whatever, um, the majority of them are very wealthy people from the community, people with a, and a couple politicians usually be and then since the 60s, They've allowed faculty to have a representative, and then they usually allow students to have a representative, whether or not that student, even if that student is a voting representative, basically a lot of times they're going to be the lone vote because everybody else is going to vote in favor of the profit-driven um, profit proposals. So it's a grand conspiracy, but not in the way that we think of conspiracies of like, say, you know, a bunch of like, clan members getting together and uh, saying, okay, we're going to go burn down this house and then burn this church down or something like that. And so on and so forth. Then we're going to, we're going to make it so that the government, you know, we control the government by, you know, doing whatever to the elections. But at the same time, there are those groups of people who do that. I mean, like the board of, you know, political parties, the heads of political parties, um, 
very wealthy people who sit on a lot of boards. And they're not all bad conspiracies, but I mean, with, if you think of the regular, um, the term, what, what conspiracy means, it's a group of people getting together to further their ends. And that can be positive, that can be negative. And it, of course, that's perspective, in my opinion. Negative would be people trying to, you know, the kind of conspiracies that we exist in today, whether it's on, whether it's Donald Trump and his people, um, the Democratic leadership and their people, or, you know, the heads of the war industry, you know, the various um, defense corporations, when they get together and say, okay, we're going to go to Congress and we're going to tell them we need this. Congress is going to go along with that. So, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if that's a really, clear answer but um it's a good answer are. is what it was because my explanation for like what i would call a deep state and people go oh you think a bunch of people in cloaks i'm like look I, there might be some of that our government's just weird um but i always just bring up it's just an unhealthy relationship with capitalism there's a lot of things people would call institutions that we're supposed to be respecting that they don't anymore because of the fact there's been massive amount of corruption i don't know where it starts like let's take an example the cia on college campuses why is that a thing why has that is still going on today it was exposed and nobody's done anything about it we've just exposed it and that was it moved on no punishment no we're not going to stop you from doing this and then also like black budgets things of this sort that go on that our government does have they never disclosed their budget in the church committee and that was the last time we ever got to know what was going on and i'm sure they're doing a lot more from 1975 but I noticed that a lot of those topics and conversations start to kind of people roll their eyes. That's a conspiracy because they just don't know. And I, I like your explanation of that. And I do think it's capitalism. I think it is this unhealthy relationship in places we shouldn't have business ties and financial interest involved in. Uh, education is a prime example. But I don't – to me, it's just surprising because you can look through history and see it relevant there as well too, and we haven't done anything about the change on it. Yeah. I mean I know people talk about um, the grand conspiracies, you know, the historical ones like the Illuminati and, and so on and so forth, the Masons, whatever. Um, but if you really – I delved into this back like when I was really interested in trying to figure out, you know, are conspiracies a real thing? Are they not? And you can't I mean, if you if you go down that hole, um, you ultimately. There's enough that's real that makes makes you keep on digging, but there's a, but you also run into a lot of contradictions. And some of those contradictions are just how it is, because life is full of contradictions and, you know, nobody, no matter how powerful it seems like no group of people, no matter how powerful they are are able to always be in control of what's going on. You know, like think think of something like, you know, the United States government, the British Empire, the Vatican, you know, just think of any historically, especially the British Empire and the Vatican, they've been around a lot longer than the United States. But so, so th there are things that they do or that they've done historically that were there to, you know, they intentionally did it to increase their power and to <clears throat> decrease or destroy their opposition's power. Um, so that in its way is is a conspiracy. But then there's also, you know, there are a lot of things that, that just happened. And you were mentioning going back to the United States. You know, my father used to, um, he worked for, he was in the Air Force, but he worked for NSA, <clears throat> you know, National Security Agency. And he said that, I remember once in high school, him and I used to have conversations, debates, arguments, whatever, because he was on one side of the war. I was on the other side, obviously, back in the, late 60s, early 70s. And he, I used to, he used to talk about 
he would always say to me, if you knew what I knew, and I was like, okay, um, I said, but that's not really fair. And so I would just ask him questions about why doesn't, why don't the CIA and NSA, why don't we know what their budgets are? And he said, because they need to have whatever money is available to them to do what they need to do. And he he never really questioned what he was doing until he got older and had been out of the out of that world for like a couple a few decades, you know. But even to, up to his final days, he believed that what he was doing was right. And he, you know, and he saw himself. He said, "I don't see myself as part of a, a grander conspiracy," but he said, "Ultimately, I guess that's what I was," you know. So it's not even necessarily a conscious thing. Once you get once you take the job. You know, you 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 kind of become part of it, especially if you're working in those kind of organizations, the military, up in the corporate levels, and especially in um, especially in um, intelligence. What people go back and forth on calling the deep state, yeah, the deep state itself. Um, I don't know. I think we talked about this a little bit one of the other times we com- conversed. Um, there was some and national some directive that came out like right in like the. Right before, right around the time the United States entered World War II, that basically created what we call the military-industrial complex and made the Pentagon the most powerful um, entity in the United States government. So, and that, I I wish I could remember the name of it. um, NSC fifty-one or fifty-eight. I can't remember which which one it is. But uh, there's there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, also that that talks talks about that. And some people who are more conspiratorial minded in what people what you're talking about when people think about conspiracies, they put it all to that. Whereas I think a broader view is ultimately, if it hadn't have been that directive, it would have been something else that would have created the created what we exist in today. Well, do you trust the term like when things get labeled national security? Like, do you trust that word? Or are you more looking into you need to explain what that word is? Oh, national security is an excuse to hide wrongdoing, <laughs> usually, you know. Yeah. Nas- and it's, a, you know, it's an excuse. I mean, I heard that when I used to work at um at the University of Vermont and we were starting, we were trying to get, um we were trying to get, get the university to um disinvest, divest from um, defense industry, you know, portfolios in, in their in their endowment portfolio. And we would start to get too close and then about getting investigating what, what exactly they were doing on campus, what Lockheed Martin was doing on campus, what Boeing or whatever, what general dynamics. And once we got to a certain point, all of a sudden we were told that's a national security issue. You can't, you can't go any further. You know, and basically that meant they were doing something that they probably didn't want anybody to know about because it was probably, if not illegal, certainly immoral. What would be a good historical point of reference you would show to people to, I guess, wouldn't say a, a clear picture of the deep state, but it let's call it the establishment. I like that word. Um, but I would just point to people towards like the whole like limiting the counterculture movement is a prime example. The whole 70s and 60s is a prime example, which is government stuff that was going on and trying to censor people's speech. We see it happen today. Censorship is still a relative issue, but it's just easier to point to the past because it's a little bit disconnected. And I feel like people will look at it more openly than they will with any problems that get tossed out today. But we've really never had anybody that's challenged the establishment, at least in my mind, the only person I think of is Kennedy, maybe Nixon. 
um, just with the fact that he thought he was in control of them. And then he started like, no, nah, that's not how it works. But Kennedy actually, you know, Wall Street and all these types of things, he was really pushing at the bill um, when it came to messing up financial interests. And I think that's a, another clear sign of it as well, too. But I, I can't point to a good historical reference for someone to be like, this is what you need to look at for historical purposes when it comes to understanding a deep state. Yeah, that's a challenge because I can't think of any particular one. I mean, there's so many different events that happen and, and trends. And it's interesting, I mean, that you mentioned Kennedy and Nixon, you know, and I would in it and, you know, I would also toss in, even though I'm not really a fan of any of those guys, um, I would also toss in Trump only because it's not that they weren't part of the establishment, but they were renegades from from the more established establishment, you know, I mean, and so it was new money coming in, a new power elite that was trying to push its way into, you know, into the ruling, the ruling, into the ruling. Call the it a frat. It's a frat. So it's, a, it's a frat in the government. You can call it that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And basically, that's what it's, I mean, you look at, so, okay, okay, the Bushes, they were skull and bones. They were Yale. They were CIA. They were, you know, they were all this kind of stuff. And they came from the old, you know, the old money as opposed to, you know, and Nixon, um, Nixon, uh, well, Kennedy, Kennedy and Trump came out of the money made from bootlegging and all the illegal activities around prohibition. And Nixon and those guys, they were sponsored by oil money, which was relatively new. Um, I mean, West oil, Western oil money, when Texas, you know, when Texas started being one of the major oil producing um, in California and so on. So it, it's hard to explain because there's so many loose ends and there's so many different directions that it could, could go. But um, there is this guy, Carl Oglesby, I think it was him. He was the, I think he was the first president of the Students for Democratic Society. He tended towards a, a left libertarian kind of viewpoint, emphasis on the libertarian. And he wrote a book, I'm pretty sure it was him, about basically the essence of it was, he called them the Cowboys. And um, I forget the name of the, the Cowboys were the Nixon, was the Nixon element of the and ruling the Yankees class. Were the, yeah, um, the, yeah, the Yankees and the Cowboys, that's it. Yeah, I know yeah. what you're talking and, about. So, so you know that book, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so basically, that was kind of his theory, and it it holds up. I mean, no theory holds up completely because there's always holes or flaws, or you could say, well, what about this? What about that? But at, in a general way, it kind of does explain those men that you mentioned and Trump as being outsiders. At the same time, they were insiders. Yeah. Well, where did the Students for Democratic Society get their information to develop their perspective? Much like how you mentioned your dad would say, you, you haven't seen what I've seen. Your dad had more of a patriotism view, which I think a lot of Americans have this like American exceptionalism that's just kind of around us. But then you had a different point of view because you've looked at some obviously other things that show you a different perspective than maybe what your dad had. I'm wondering where do the Students for Democratic Society get their perspective to the point where they branch off in two different directions? I get the suppression that a lot of people weren't. I mean, Black Panther Party, they were not being heard. They had to do something. But then you get the other side of the weather underground, which was not as violent as the extremists that had a different take on things. But it becomes where it separates, divides, and then it gets lost. And that's much like with any group that really tries to challenge an establishment type, it gets lost. Well, they started out of, um, God, it was one of the uh, left 
democratic socialist groups that kind of kind of became very anti-soviet during during the 50s and so they basically stopped calling themselves socialists they stopped calling you know they kicked any communists out of out of their out of their group um but they did give money to a student a group of students with tom hayden i believe at at the forefront and a couple of those the original members um and th there uh, th the point was to create a um it was originally called the student league for industrial democracy michael harrington was in the group that um the socialist party usa is what i actually believe it was that was a parent organization and they had made it very clear they were anti-communist they were anti-soviet because they wanted to be come off as patriotic americans and so on and they also knew that with how deep the repression was against the left back in the 50s and the early 60s that a lot of them would have ended up in jail if they didn't make it very clear that they were americans first and then socialists or whatever but anyhow so and then so this um the students for the democratic society came out of the the students league for industrial democracy and you know it was pretty much a uh you know a social it, it, it was kind of about the same where you know i would say bernie sanders was when he first started running for president you know like in two, his 2016 you know patriotic you know they believe that america had the potential the united states had the potential to uh, be the country that they were told it was uh and i think what and so they, they first they started off doing a student work and doing a lot of work with the um with various groups, um, civil rights work, you know, freedom riders, that kind of stuff. And then going in around 65, 66, they started focusing more on the war in Vietnam as it became big after Kennedy was killed. And then in the first year of um, Johnson's presidency, uh, when the war, they started sending more and more troops over there and it became bigger and bigger. And people were starting to see some of their friends getting drafted and being sent over there as opposed to getting drafted in not having to worry about it you know um so and i think when they started focusing on the war and then, then they also started focusing on inner city work doing a, a lot of a lot of work that um now is kind of done by community organizations ngos even even some government groups um stuff like well stuff like what head start does now um stuff like uh food banks uh trying to get rent control in, you know, all just basic kind of stuff for people living in working class and poor neighborhoods so that they could survive. Assisted living. Yeah, yeah, kind of like mutual aid kind of stuff and so on, yeah. And But then as it became, as the war got bigger and bigger and was taking more and more people and became more and more of an issue and the images were coming back and the GIs were coming back talking about the stuff that they had done and how, you know, how murderous and how, what was really going on over there and that the vietnamese a lot of the vietnamese didn't want americans there they just wanted to be vietnamese uh and so on and all that kind of stuff that happened so by 1968 the the war was their main focus and they were also the you know by then they probably had close to 100,000 members across the united states you know um you know probably about 50,000 of them were dues paying but a lot of other people identified as sds and they were go reaching into the high schools and even into junior highs in like big big cities like New York and Boston and places that are more more liberal in general anyhow um so they uh and so that basically started to create a situation where those people who were not completely against the war drifted away 
but by that though by the that by the time that happened most people were getting in the SDS and a lot of college students and young people in general were becoming more and more militant just because they were getting more and more frustrated so by 69 when they split and the, there was communist groups that were you know pretty active inside SDS and they you know they were doing what they, you know they operate as a block so they were able to push through um elements and proposals um through and get, and get the national organization endorsement primarily because they voted as a block instead of as different individuals and i mean that's just kind of how that works you know unions do the same thing caucuses and unions do the same thing they do it in congress you know you have the right wing guys over there the freedom caucus they try to they block stuff so that they can get at least some of what they wanted so it's basically typical politics inside a, a relatively closed organization uh, and but basically it was the um just the frustration over the war that drove so many people to the extreme to the extreme ends just because i'm a generation disconnected from the vietnam war i mean we learn about it but would you say that was like the first time people ever really came in contact with the what the actual communism is and realized it wasn't like the one that was painted over here as like everyone that you know is a communist. Like you can get labeled a communist over here back then. And a lot of those people I really debate on if they were actually communists or not, or just what they were labeling, trying to label as extremist or something of that sort. But it seems like when people came back from the Vietnam War, there was a lot of dissent amongst going over there. There was a lot of people that either had it before or shared their opinion afterwards. And then you were labeled a communist for having that dissent when really you just came in contact with the actual version of it. Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I think it was the first time. I mean, there is maybe a, another comparable time, but this was before there was actually a communist party in the United States um, was during right World War One, when the Wobblies, you know, when the Wobblies were big and doing a lot of and um, the industrial workers of the world. And oh, okay. they were yeah, they were leading those giant strikes and the free speech things. And then when the Soviet when the Russian Revolution happened, that made a lot of people, um, the, a lot of regular working people were attracted to that because they saw, because the disparity in power and in money and everything was so great, kind of like what it is today, you know, the inequality, because that was the time of the robber barons. And now today we have a new time of the robber barons uh, where we have a lot of people who are incredibly poor and relatively few people who are very, 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 very wealthy. But I think what you're saying is actually be, at, when communism was a thing, and then, you know, I grew up always hearing about how terrible the communists were. And so people who are just a few years older than me, who were in high school, say, when I was in junior high, or who, you know, were in, it was continuous. It, it was throughout school. It was, you know, it was on the TV. It was in the movies. I mean, everywhere you went, it was communism bad, communism bad, communism bad. And then when people started reading about it and actually kind of realizing and or experiencing it when they went over to Vietnam and started talking to, you know, seeing what was going on, um, if they didn't think it was okay, they at least wondered, well, why do we care? You know, that's their business and, and our business is different, you know. I mean, Amer I don't think the United States would ever become socialist just because I think it's such a capitalist country that the best that we can hope for is is for the country to at least try to like it did for a little while um beginning with roosevelt uh and all the way up until probably mid-70s but definitely by the 80s it was over the, the they at least there was an attempt to make everybody 
bring everybody up so at least they had a had a job had a place to live could get whatever education they wanted to get at a reasonable cost and all that kind of stuff so because i don't you know i think that's as best as we can do but or you know a lot of the stuff that was say once again i'll bring him up a lot of the stuff was that in the bernie sanders campaign you know just just kind of like making things a little more fair and making it so that the wealthy people can't continue to completely destroy the rest of the planet in this in the search of their profits etc I would ask, do you think that communism was a great brush or great point to bring out that really defended or cloaked even more capitalism? Uh, it seems like a lot of people, maybe some people are obviously aware of the establishment and things of that sort, but it seems like the word communism really detracted from the overall business ties. I mean, when do you think capitalism really had an Excel point? I know in the Great Depression, there was a question if we were going to stick with the capitalist model just because it seemed like it failed and it didn't work. We might have to try a new method. And then we ended up sticking with capitalism. And now there is no middle class, but it's excelled to a point where it's very clear now. I'm just curious if there was a time period where you can notice that there was just this massive overall infestation of capitalism. And also, do you think communism was a great scapegoat for capitalism to keep growing and spreading? Because obviously we notice it's pretty deeply connected now. I would, I don't know if I can, answer the first part of that question but the second part either a good question or a bad question <laughs> yeah yeah communism certainly was a scapegoat and i think it continues to be i mean you see um the right wing you know bringing it up all the time like trump you know saying we're gonna chase if i get elected i'm gonna chase all the leftist vermin out of the country all blah 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 all that kind of stuff um capitalism it's hard to say but i i really think capitalism has been has been in the driver's seat since the late 1800s in the United States. I, I really do. Uh, when they were able to stifle various labor movements, I mean, rather violently, you know, I mean, because there was a, the, the strikes were massive back then. I mean, when you think of like the, the, the Pullman Railroad strike in 1877, all the different minor strikes um, and, you know, and they just basically, they were very violent. They brought out the Pinkertons, they brought out the military and, the Pinkertons killed, you know, dozens of people in in tent, labor camps and stuff. So, and I think after that, a lot of, and and then I think of maybe another time when when it became, when a lot of the American population really started to accept it and uh, and want it and say, yeah, go capitalism was in the '60s when it, when a lot of at least white people were really, you know, the late 50s and, the, and through the 60s, when most, a lot of the white people, which is the majority of the people in the United States, um, were doing pretty well. You know, they could, they could buy a home, they could raise a family, they could send their kid to college, they could, you know, they could buy a car, you know, they had a decent life, they could take vacations. But a big reason for that, and, you know, it is because enough... There is enough workers who are unionized, you know, like it was what around union membership in the United States at the time was probably between 20 and 30 percent. And now it's like around 10 percent at the best, you know. And so those people. By the fact that there is that many workers who are unionized, they were able to bring up the wages of everybody else because, you know, employers would do that just to keep the union out of their out of their workplace. And then when the. the onslaught against the unions began and it began in earnest under nixon but even nixon was smart enough and shrewd enough to know that he had to work with the unions i mean he was buddies with the teamsters 
I know but, we got to get into Jimmy Hoffa. I was yeah, going to mention yeah, yeah. it. I was, was like, we gotta I mean, this. those guys and that, and, and the thing with the unions is, is like they cut, you know, it wasn't all the capitalist fault that unions became less popular. Sure. Ronald Reagan went after him with a vengeance and he wanted to get rid of the unions more than any president um, until Trump. But uh, he, um, the, the thing was that, you know, the unions, they, they got taken, some of the unions got taken over by the mob and other criminal enterprises. And what the big thing was like in the 1940s, 47, 48, whenever they passed the Taft-Hartley Act, um, which basically limited the right of unions to organize. They reversed a lot of stuff that had been completely liberalized under Roosevelt, um, only in, earlier in the decade, actually. Um, and so they basically said, you anybody who was a, was a communist or socialist, if they wanted to be, the AFL-CIO was said, if you want to be a member of the AFL-CIO, you have to kick all your communists and socialists out of the union. And most of the unions did that. The Teamsters didn't. But that's because they were pretty much already under the influence of, you know, they didn't need the AFL-CIO. They were strong enough on their own. The main union, the biggest union that did it, that didn't go along with that and refused to kick out their leftists, was the Union of Electrical and Radio Workers. Now it's called UE. And they still exist, but, you know, they probably have a few hundred, a couple hundred thousand, three hundred thousand members. But they've always rejected they've always refused to go along with the AFL-CIO um basically when you join an AFL-CIO member union you have to promise to defend respect and defend the constitution and you also have to say that you will do political work but it will only be through the part the the mainstream parties so that they yeah. wanted to limit limit anybody on the left and they, they so they lost a lot of good organizers because leftists tend to be some of the people you know the, the best organizers because they truly believe in what they're doing and they're willing to go out there and pass out leaflets and argue with people to convince them to join the union and all that kind of stuff whereas most most people who are in unions they like it because it helps them it gives them job security more or less and it gives them better benefits and and it gives them a way to redress grievances with with their employer but i mean i just was a I was a local union local president for the last three years of my working when I was working full time. And that's basically was my experience. There was a few activists who were really strong and wanted to do a lot of stuff with the union. But most people, you know, it was like pulling teeth to even get them to vote in the election for their steward or their officer, because to them, it was just like another part of the job. Like when you go into when you get a job, you go into HR and you fill out your tax papers and your you know, medical papers and all that kind of stuff. To them, it was just one more thing. It wasn't any, they didn't feel a big part of it. And I but, think a lot of that disinterest happened um, because the unions kind of gave themselves, the union leadership gave the unions a bad name. Yeah, I'm going to ask about that, the union stigma, I guess, because I've heard it from some people that unions shouldn't be allowed or unions are bad. I was like, well, aren't unions important to the, putting the power to the worker if they want to demand that they get paid more? I mean, shouldn't they get paid more? But I see companies now not, I guess, putting in their contracts not to have unions or you can't have a union or start a union. I was like, I thought that's against your, like, your fundamental right as a human being to be able to unionize the workers union that you're supposed to be able to get benefits for yourself. I mean, 
look, I have a controversial opinion on Jimmy Hoffa. I know a lot of people don't like him, but he made the Teamsters Union and really helped out a lot of people. So I'm like, I wish it wasn't a crime figure that did it. But for God's sakes, he was fighting for a lot of people and did help out a lot of people. I think the percentage under his reign or something like that went up drastically as much as Robert Kennedy's um, towing for the mob went up drastically. But there was... For me, it's like if we can get past the mob stuff, obviously, I'm not defending him as a person, but he did a lot of good things for those truckers. And I was like, to me, that was really, really important because you got to think about the people that get left to the side and then capitalism or corporations get all the money and all that. And these people don't get treated properly. Maybe I'm mistaken on the unions, then. No, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, unions are like anything else. You know, they're a bundle of contradictions. And and uh you could have a great union leader and and a great who who's really strong and gets stuff for his people for for the people in 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 their union and so on, and but that doesn't you know they can still be a crook, and that's because there's so much money there. It's kind of you know human nature. Yeah, and and some people just can't help themselves, especially when when that's kind of like how people get ahead in this. You know, ultimately that's how people get ahead in this country is you know. The first year, you know, like the Ken- let's go back to the Kennedys. All that Kennedy money was made from illegal activities. Let's do the it because gen- the 60th is coming up. I'll post this at the 60th. Yeah. <laughs> and the next generation, they were all just great. You know, they're the Kennedys. They're you know they're Catholics. They proved that Catholics can make it make it in the wasp. You know, the wasp society, and they you know and they're wealthy and they're you know they're just rich people and they you know they made it and so on. But nobody talks about you know. Oh yeah, they made it because they were, you know, they were bootleggers and you know gunslingers and whatever. Just like Trump's money came from his father being a crook, basically, you know, pimping and running, running dope or whatever, you know. And so it's all like, you know, the Rockefellers' money came from like stealing everybody, stealing gold mines in Indonesia and all that. Yeah. So so it's all funny because you know, capitalism is just better organized crime than 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 what we consider crime it's it's organized crime that becomes legal and regarding the union i i think it should be easier for people to join unions um and those those contracts that you're talking about you know i don't know i they used to be illegal they're they're called yellow dog contracts and they used to, i don't know where the i forget where the terminology the phrase comes from but they used to be illegal um, in a lot of states, because it it basically went against um, the First Amendment, the right to peace, peacefully assembly to address your grievances, right? Um, but it's a good possibility. I'm sure, and my brother told me in the tech stuff, I have, I have a brother who owns a small tech company out in California, along with a couple of his friends. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, it's it's almost a standard clause in their contracts that you will that you won't unionize. And he said, the thing is, most of the people that he that he's hired, he said, they don't believe in unions anyhow, because they're a bunch of, you know, they're almost all libertarians. He says, they don't, he says, a lot of his people, they don't even like people. So why would what they want to have to work to, you know, you know, what I mean, like join a union and then actually have to communicate with other people, except through their computer and so on. He says, they're great coders, but, you know, he says they need a little work on <laughs> socialization and stuff. So you know, if that's if those contracts are out there, I wouldn't be surprised at all because I know they've always been there, even when they were even in the states when they were illegal and so on. 
I want to ask about um organized crime. Obviously, it's I'm disconnected from that as much as I am disconnected from the Vietnam War. I've been learning a lot about it because I have a large interest in it. To me, it's just fascinating. I don't think they killed Kennedy or anything. I'm just interested in learning about their presence. I mean, you had real gangsters walking around the streets and being political. There's a famous photo I want to get on my wall of Jimmy Hoffa going like this with his middle finger itching his eye when he's in the middle of a hearing. I mean, as much as they joked and they made fun of these politics and these inner shenanigans, at one point they worked with our government um, to try and assassinate Castro and probably in other various things as well, too. But I mean, what was it like? I mean, from a historical perspective, I mean, what would you in your mind was is the impact of that? on just the american people i mean my generation's disconnected but i don't know if you could explain a little bit more about the times on that one there's this guy he's 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 his name is doug valentine and he's written he's written some really good books on that his probably his most famous book is on the phoenix program over in vietnam war yeah in vietnam yeah but he wrote two books about the drug war in the united states back when it was like all Harry Anslinger. So basically the reason I bring it up is because he talks a lot about how they'd be going, how the, how the United States, um, first the OSS and then what you know, ultimately became the CIA, um, how they, they made deals with different gangsters, um, allowing them to bring in, you know, when they had the French connection through Marseille and, and, you know, the, that's when the heroin used to come through turkey opium then get processed in marseille and then get shipped over to the united states and up into other parts of europe um and so basically that the united states basically let them smuggle this in because they were doing work not just against castro over in italy right after world war ii um and when they were getting after they had you know gotten you know locked up the fascists the remaining fascists and so on that they wanted to lock up um they and then they were they were getting italy was getting ready to have its first elections since probably before the war um and the communists were probably going to win it was the communists the christian democrats and one other party but it was basically the one other party was kind of going to be like a spoiler they're going to just and so ultimately they if one of the other comp, um parties that if the communists or the christian democrats had won and they didn't get a majority they would have to make a deal with one of the other parties to get the parliamentary majority because you know that's how it works in you know politics countries that have parliaments as opposed to what we have uh so they went so they they the united states the cia organized they worked together with different members of the costa nostra um in italy and in the united states to um subvert the election uh Beat the hell out of communists, get or communist organizers, communist people trying to get people to to the polls. Uh, they stuffed ballot boxes, they stole ballot boxes, and ultimately they helped turn the election in favor of the party that the United States was sponsoring, which was the Christian Democrats. And the United States dumped tons of money into their into the Christian Democrats campaign because they did not want the communists to win anything beyond what they used to call the Iron Curtain. Uh, France had a similar situation. Um, but the but the CIA wasn't as involved in that, mostly because France France really didn't like the United States and its country that much. You know, I was De Gaulle, and De Gaulle ultimately won, um, and and was the president, the premier president, whatever they call it, for a while. So it's hard to say how much influence they had through the manipulations that they were allowed to do. Um, 
He did. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa did like four hundred thousand dollars to Nixon's campaign or something. Like, no, no, no. Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. He's not even a gangster. He's just a a, a business movie pilot inventor guy. But he there's Nixon Burger. His brother's uh, Nixon's brother had a burger chain restaurant. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and when yeah. he took a photo in front of that <laughs> banner, that. and it's yeah. all in yeah. like Vietnamese or something like that, and they had a good laugh about it. But it said, "Ask about the loan." And then they get fortune cookies, and they're all laughing, like making fun of communism. And then they crack open and the thing in the fortune read, "Ask him about the loan," because Howard Hughes had loaned his brother all this money, and also uh, Jimmy Hoffa did it too with his Teamsters Union. But that's crazy. I get goosebumps talking about it. To me, that's like that's just I. I don't know. It's just the craziest kind of like side jab into someone to be like, Hey, ask him about the loan. Like, yeah, Oh yeah, God, he right, took yeah, money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, um, any of those gangster movies, you know, they are kind of true, especially the ones that talk about the mob, you know, like, like Godfather and some of those other ones that came out after that, you know, and ba- you know, it goes back to, uh, I believe it was, um, Coppola, maybe, or maybe one of the people who worked on the on the screenplay for for the Godfather movies said that um, basically this is just a story of American capitalism. Yeah. yeah, and it's true. I mean, it's just how it operates, and it, and they and you know they put their money into le- legal businesses, but at the same time they they had their hands in all the Ill- illegal stuff that was going on. So. Do you think the government used the mob only because it gave them plausible deniability of some of the actions that were going on? I'm sure that was a big part of it. I think another part of it, too, was because they also knew that um, they had the. uh, Yeah, it was definitely a lot of the plausible deniability, but they also knew that they had the. uh, The skill. To plan, plan those operations and carry them out and. People might not even find out about them. If ever, at least for several years, which is what happened. We nobody found out about those for for years, and there's still stuff that occasionally gets uncovered if you want to start looking for it. I mean, what would you say would be things like how the mob was just these active crime figures were just walking around the streets, basically, and everyone knew who they were. But was there another period where there was like this kind of we think back on it now where it's kind of shocking to see? I mean, obviously, government operations get exposed, but. We don't, I mean, was there anything later in the 70s or anything like that? Even the 80s? I don't even hear much about the 80s. I guess it just must have been a disco rave or something like that. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's a good question. I mean, you know, like, um, as as, um, a lot of the Italian, the originally Italian crime figures um, got taken down or retired or whatever. Uh, And if you think about how, since the main thing, any, any, organized crime has been involved in it seems since the late 60s has been has involved drugs uh, illegal drugs and you think about how what happened you know as as it went from being a european connection to being more of a south american connection and an asian connection that kind of changed who were who who was in control who were the organized crime but i i can't think of any time since then that it was so obvious not in the united states i'm in the, I guess you, you know, friends of mine who live in Mexico and you know people I know who who lived in Colombia and stuff they said down there that was comparable you know during especially during the cocaine heyday you know and now the cartels they basically run different parts of Mexico and everybody knows who they are but they have enough of the cops in their employ and the federales and so on that they can kind of just operate freely and just the main thing they have to worry about is their enemies because 
you know, like like they were in the days that the movies were made, where a lot of people got gunned down in the in the various family wars, um, in, in the you know the Italian based mafia. That's that still goes on in organized crime in in South America and Mexico and stuff. When did people become aware of the government's involvement? I mean, they're not really necessarily all aware today, but the government working with organized crime. I mean, did they know it after the church committee? Did people talk about it? Because like that's a serious. I mean, not ethical concern, but that would make me question everything. I still, I when I started asking questions about what our government's up to. Yeah, I, when I first remember hearing about it in the mainstream media was the church hearings. Yeah, because that the whole what what he did, he uncovered so much stuff until they basically made it harder for him to get to certain things. And I think he decided, okay, how far can I go without either risking his life or breaking into secrets that might take down the whole government, which he didn't want to do that because he believed in the United States and stuff. But I really remember reading a lot about it in the mainstream media, like, and seeing it on the TV, 74, 75, 76, the Washington Post had a bunch of stories on it. And I was living in the DC area then. So I read, that's what was my main mainstream news source. It had been in different underground papers um, and, and, alternative papers like um i have stone weekly and stuff investigative reporters who are coming at it from the left and a lot of the underground newspapers had some access to to some of that material it was being leaked to them and my guess is that it was kind of like the um pentagon papers is that government workers who had run across this information data at first they tried to give it to um congress people or to mainstream media but it was probably too hot for them to um to deal with or there wasn't enough verification because if you think about it if you're a um if you're working for a mainstream media outlet and you're kind of like you want to keep your job and you want to go up in the world you got a career path etc that involves um it involves being careful let's say about what what you put out there about the government and about people in power and so on um and um so, so obviously so the only way a main a mainstream media thing is going to do is going to publish that is if they can have verification from so many different sources that that they can go ahead and go go forward with it i don't know i think we talked a little bit or mentioned you know the, all the president's men and uh you know and uh you know basically the, the main source for that was a disgruntled fbi agent and deep throat that's what he who he mark, turned out well, to be. allegedly mark felt but i think that was the only time anything was ever confirmed from one source and not have a backed up source to prove and it. they didn't have a backup but i think it's because the the nature of who the source was that benjamin bradley went ahead and said okay we can we can do this and even what's her name Catherine graham i think was in on the you know and who knows maybe they knew him socially. i think deep throat was multiple people yeah yeah i do too i think he was provide i think he was the the person they met with um and maybe i mean i think of like when i wrote my weather underground book i think of um it was very difficult to get any information out of any weather underground member because they still didn't know if they had warrants out on them because you know that was in the 90s early early 90s was when i started actually thinking about okay i'm going to do this and asking them you know, so what I would have to do is I would find stuff like, say, in underground newspapers or an FBI and what little FBI stuff had been released at the time um, on them. 
and also in main mainstream papers. And then I would kind of have to like go backwards from there. And then I could talk to people I know who I knew who had sold drugs to the different Weather Underground members and stuff like that for their acid sessions or whatever. And they could say, oh, yeah, da 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 da. I can hook you up with this guy and or you should talk to this person. And I always tried to I wanted to have at least three just unconnected sources before I would put it in my book, because I figured that was pretty was pretty good, you know. And they say usually you want to have at least two. I mean, in journalism school, that's kind of what they you want to have at least two besides your original source. And so I wanted to have at least three besides my original source. So there was stuff that later came out in books that were written later, like Dan Berger's book and a couple other ones, and that were written by actual Weather Underground members, where they had they put out more information that I had in my notes, but I didn't couldn't find verification from it from other sources. So I didn't print it in. So I think what you're saying about Mark Felt. I'm thinking that a lot of times they had like um, Woodward, Bernstein and whoever their staff or the people working with them, the stringers and the freelancers and stuff who were working with them. Um, I think they had this information and then they would bring it to felt as their. And if he said, yeah, this is how it happened or no, that's not how it happened at all. That would be would help them make the final decision. Do we run with this or do we set it aside till we have more? You know more data or we just say forget it we're not going to do include this in our story at all there's just questions about because there's some of the meetings that uh bernstein and all them talked about where he'd move a potted plant or something like that to be able to see me well there some of their timing is off because mark felt was in another area unless he can time travel or deep throat was two people or they just fabricated a bit of that story or fudged it a little bit. I mean, it could be multifactorial there, but there's just uh, for me, I just don't think Mark Felt's the only one. I think it's multiple people that had information that were maybe coming out later because Mark Felt would get information from somebody else or something of that sort. But I mean, how much do you think the impact of Daniel Ellsberg had not only on the, I guess, the institution, but also the Nixon and Watergate? I mean, that breaking into students for a Democratic was it? Was it? I forgot the name of Democratic offices. Something. Yeah, the Democratic Central Committee offices in, in Watergate. Yeah, yeah. I think um, when immediately Daniel Ellsberg freaked out a lot of people when when he released the when the Pentagon Papers began to be published, and uh, I mean I remember my father being like he, he I remember him like telling me because <clears throat> he asked me what I thought. I said I'm glad that information's out there, and he said. Well, he said, there's a reason we have secrets. And I said, well, the, it seems to me the reason there's secrets is because you want to hide the facts from the American people. And they, they're the ones who should know. And so we had our little ongoing conversation. It was comparable to the one we had when uh, Chelsea Manning, um, when, when they were still Bradley, and they released that, that wiki, that wiki, WikiLeaks. The, yeah, the WikiLeaks with the... Um, the helicopter gunman shooting down the journalists in this in the, the main one of the main squares in Baghdad. But anyhow, um, the government was freaking out. My father told me like later, he said, yeah, he said in our office, he said, we got all we got um, directives from the main office in in um, NSA, which were handed down from from the White House that we needed to they had to go through a brand new protocol. They added, he said, we added at least two more levels of security to every single document that we had, whether they were cla they were classified top secret 
or not not classified at all. So he said it may, gave us more work, but it was all about enhancing the security. And he said we had to go through more. There was more vetting of civilians, especially um, that they worked with. But he said also with um, GIs and you know people who weren't career officers, people who were in there, you know, who had joined the Air Force because they didn't want to get drafted to go to Vietnam. So they signed up for four years in the Air Force and they had certain skills like, you know, they could write, they could type or whatever, you know, because they were college graduates or whatever. And so they they would end up working, they would get, send them to Germany or to Italy, wherever they were sent for one of their stations and they would work with them. And he said, but we had to vet them even more. And so I asked him what that meant. And he, he just said, well, someone like you, for example, we would not have been able to hire we, because he said you had because of your work against against the war you know, because cause i had joined different protests and stuff which so, is so weird because you would think that anybody that would have criticism or things that you can do that are obviously checking unchecked powers you'd want them involved but i guess they're not thinking about correcting themselves they just want to make sure they can do whatever they want yeah they want to remain an unchecked power yeah i mean that that's that's why I, you know, supposedly, you know, if you believe in, you know, the stuff we got taught in, in civics class or whatever they call it, social studies, um, that's why you have the checks and balances. But when the checks aren't checking the balances and the balances aren't checking the checks, that's what we have is the a system of unchecked power. And that's where we're at now. That's where we were, we're at then. And like you said, the church committee and Watergate shook it up a little bit, but then basically a lot of the stuff that Nixon did that was illegal. A lot of that's no longer illegal. You know, that's, you know, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why they had such a hard time. And then the other part is a lot of people don't care. You know, that's that's why they had such a hard time um, going after Trump, even though, I mean, he was brazen compared to Nixon. You know, a lot of his crookedness was like pretty brazen and he's still getting away with it uh, because people don't want to go after him or because a lot of his campaign stuff that was illegal under Nixon, when Nixon did it, is is not is not as illegal. Plus, any good campaign, any good campaign organization figured out ways, to, found the loopholes in the law, so they can continue to get their four hundred thousand dollars in cash from the Teamsters or whatever, and and figure out a way to process it. You know, you have to be pretty. I think pretty um, pretty stupid to get caught for campaign stuff kind of like that santos guy you know i mean he was just like too obvious kind of like it looks like eric adams in in new york city might get caught just because he was too obvious about what he was spending his money the campaign money on because guess, yeah. there's obviously ways you can set it up where you can spend the money however you want but you have to go through, you have to make sure it can't be traced back to the source or whatever even with Nixon, the amount that you had to look at, like all these different things he was funneling money into, and like you had the when you're tracing it, it's not like simple stuff. It's not like he was like, "Hey, here's four hundred thousand dollars in cash right up front to in broad daylight." They were done through like offshore and like, all, like weird meetings and from other people as advisors, specific advisor that had to be in the room that everyone knew that was Nixon's guy. So that means you technically have Nixon at your table. Like there's stuff like that where I go, that means that somebody all out exposed your garbage. And that means you were attacked. I mean, I'm not saying, like I said, not Nixon's not, not defending him at all, but right. I really, oh, yeah, sure, sure. I just yeah, go yeah, question sure. when like, they're like, oh, this scandal just broke. I was like, whenever it's someone that you guys support, your scandal never breaks. 
there's never a scandal on the guy that toes the company line, but there's always someone that shakes up the system. My issue is, is that I don't want it to be something where we forget around us the events that are so significant if you look at that whole 70s era it's watergate but it's nixon i'm like guys he's not the only one doing bad i hope we don't look back and go trump was 2020 i hope we don't look back at that i go well there were some serious concerns um like when it came to either documentation that was released or other things that were doing in other countries getting out of afghanistan i mean there's a lot of stuff that i do not want to be meshed into where that's the only thing that we're teaching culturally because that doesn't look good on us as humans when it just comes to we got to move forward and check some of these things that have not been checked yeah you you hit a good point there um how we tend to pers- how american politics whether it's intentional or whether it's just the way we are because of our individualist culture or whatever but and our and our focus on personalities um we we tend to personalize politics so like you said yeah, it was Nixon, Nixon, Nixon. And I already think it's Trump, Trump, Trump. I mean, if you look at the Democratic the stuff coming out now for the next the upcoming presidential campaign, they keep on talking about Trump, Trump, Trump. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, Trump, Trump did some bad things. But the only reason Trump is is a likely candidate, um, um, a likely opponent in 2024 is because you didn't take care of business and. You know, convict him of something. You know, because obviously there's plenty of stuff to be convicted of out there, but they're just like not wanting to do that because it makes it easier for them to campaign against Trump. At the same time, like you said, there is this other stuff. I mean, there's this other stuff that's going on and is greater than any individual president, any individual group of Congress people or whatever that, you know. And that just goes money on. funneling into Ukraine when seven hundred dollars was only donated once to the people of Maui when their fires happened. We don't even talk about Maui anymore. It's all gone. I'm like, where's those people? Our, our lives are destroyed. Still, it didn't just go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a, you know, and and that's the thing is like we 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 think politics operates in four you know in in four year cycles because that's how. That's how we're trained to think, and that's what the media it makes it the it makes it so that the media has something to talk about and can you know can whip everybody up every four years or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, the greater the greater issues are the things that we don't talk about, if ever. Definitely, definitely once they're gone for a little while, we we don't even think about them anymore until somebody brings them up ten years down the road and says, "What the hell did we do here?" You know, like you know Afghanistan Afghanistan dragged on for twenty years. And, you know, every once in a while, someone would bring something up. But for the most part, it was kind of like in 1984, where there's always the war going on, you know, in the novel 1984, there's always a war going on, but nobody thinks about it, except when the, except when the government <clears throat> decides they need to detract people from something more local, you know, so I, it's, it, it's, it, it's frustrating because you, you know, it's been going on and you know, it exists. And also, you kind of have this feeling like 20 years from now, you'll be like, yeah, this is what I was saying 20 years ago. But, you know, nobody wanted to hear about it then. So what are your thoughts on the two party system? I tend to have disbelief in it just because of the fact I just believe too much in a deep state or establishments even think that it's I'm not saying every election is rigged at all. I'm sure there's election fraud or all that type of stuff. I'm sure that happens in every election. I'm sure it's a small percentage, though. Not, I just don't vote. I don't have a candidate. I don't have a dog in the battle because I just don't think – I think not the outcomes already picked, 
But I just think that there's a lot of things that start happening during elections that will rig it in their favor, someone who best fits their interest. My only basis for that is regime change in other countries trying to put someone that they approve as being in charge of that country. That we know we've done that with foreign powers where I start going, I mean, if you can spark up or get the press to start labeling somebody or doing something, they labeled it Robert Kennedy Jr. and anti-vaxxer as soon as he announced his presidential campaign. I was like, come on, like all of media was doing that. And it was like, whether you want to say it's true or not, I'm just saying that's not who the man is. He's a good guy. Listen to some of his policies, but you just see kind of targeting start to happen. And that's why I've never I've never voted. It's not that I don't think I have a duty or anything to do so. I just it's hard for me to understand or believe it when I can look in the past and show you how many times it's failed. I think the two party system is really just a one party. Um, I think it's two sides of the same coin and they represent the same people. You know, they represent different groups of powerful people and power, powerful enti- entities in, in the upper, in the upper classes of the, of the United States. Um, and I think on certain things, it, it doesn't matter who you have in. I mean, on certain things like, is it, is the defense industry going to get a lot of money? Yeah. It doesn't matter who's in. It doesn't matter if it's the Democrats or the Republicans, you know, no matter what, the defense budget will always go up. It always has and it's, it always will because of the power that they have and whatever else. I th- And I mean, I vote, I don't always vote for president because like you, I don't really feel anybody represents me. And then um, I vote more, I do vote on local elections, you know, all the way up to the state, the state level, usually, unless there's really nobody who serves who represents any of my interests. I agree with you about how they they totally go after um, third party candidates. And even, I mean, RFK Jr., he tried to run as a Democrat and basically the Democrats said, it ain't, ain't gonna happen. You know, the Democratic leadership said, that's not gonna happen. They did the um, same thing with Bernie Sanders. Yes, yeah, and they, and you know, and Bernie made the same mistake, but the, the, the other side of it is third party candidates, they're, the, the, the two party system is set up to keep everybody else out of the, out of, out of the race, you know, the most they can do is like, say someone like Ross Perot back in 1980, he, was it 1980 or was it 19, whenever he ran, I can't remember, he took away enough of the, it must have been 1992 or 88, he took away enough of the votes so that, God, I wish I could remember who, that, so that the Republican was able to, was it the Republican was able to win or the Democrat, I can't remember my, my history's going wrong, you know, but basically that's all they can ever do is be a spoiler. For example, I, one I know for sure, 1968, um, George Wallace ran um, as an American independent party and he was very far right. He was kind of like what Donald Trump is now. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it was, um, it was ultimately it was Nixon for the Republicans and Humphrey for the Democrats. And he took away uh, George Wallace took away enough votes, I believe, from the Democrats. Um, he took away like the Dixiecrat vote from the Democrats, you know, because he was he was racist, and you know Hubert Humphrey was not racist. Hubert Humphrey was a civil rights guy, um, and so they took away enough, but they took away more votes from the Democrats, which allowed Nixon to squeeze by and win. And that's all a third party candidate has ever can ever do has ever done in the 20th century or in the and in the 21st century. You know, they they some people still blame Ralph Nader for um, W winning back what was it 2000? 
but that's kind of a silly argument when you when you think about how many you know how, how many votes were actually out there so and i think it goes back to what i kind of touched on earlier when, we, when i mentioned parliamentary systems where you know under parliamentary systems if a party or a candidate gets a certain threshold meets a certain threshold of votes in the in the general election they get representation in the legislature whereas here it's winner take all so it's always going to be between i mean you have a couple independents in the in the like bernie bernie sanders is an independent in the senate and there's a couple i think there's one or two independents in the house and the independents in the house lean more towards the republicans and bernie sanders is basically a democrat so if but but if we had proportional representation like they do in 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 most european and most a lot of asian parliaments i think it would completely change the way the way power is, is distributed but there's a i i believe also that when they when they created the constitution that was the compromise that the radicals however many there were actually in the constitutional convention that was the, the compromise they made with the plantation owners and the southerners to keep them in the union because the, the, the southerners wanted to make sure that they were going to be able to have basically have minority power you know the, the plantation owners and they did until the civil war through the through the various like giving slaves three-fifths of a vote and all that kind of stuff and then the creating the senate to two senators no matter how big how populated populated the state was and so on you know i always think it's interesting vermont has two senators there's not even a million people here and you know california you know there's like how many millions 20 of people million. and they have the huh like 20 million yeah and they have two senators you know so that's that's not exactly that's kind of basically representation with you know unfair unequal representation completely you know but that's how and then the electoral college is set up essentially the same way which is why it, it makes why it makes sure that the those in power whether they're democrats or republicans that group stays at the top that's why i say i i really just see it as a as a one party i agree you know, with you really just... i agree with you i think we're in the same boat on that one i know we didn't have a structure to this conversation but i do appreciate it anyway because i think we covered a lot of good topics we're kind of but... rambling all over here i yeah. love it dude um <laughs> so, so my show is about conversation but no i wanted to ask you one last question which is i mean from your perspective in your opinion do you think things obviously will change when it comes to looking at capitalism a little bit deeper i mean what would you recommend the best thing for people my generation and others to do dive into history or try and sort out reality for themselves well you know everybody has their own approach um there's for me, history helps a lot, you know, just, you know, and reading history from like, like from a anti, kind of like an anti-capitalist or at least objective, not pro-capitalist viewpoint. And and those books are out there. I mean, I don't know, you know, I'm not exactly, you know, I, I could come up with, with some titles if I thought about it, but, um, you know, if you come, you, that, that kind of helps. And then the other part is just kind of, If, if you can if people can kind of understand that the driving force be behind pretty much everything done in the United States and I would say nowadays in the world but especially in the United States because the United States is still the most dominant country um 
politically, militarily, and I think it's still economically the most dominant um, country. But you know, China China is pretty close, um, and basically they're all capitalists. There are no non-capitalist countries in the United in the world anymore. Um, there's some that are less capitalists or have a different version of capitalism than what the United States has, because basically they have more breaks on what the billionaires can do. You know, I mean, like China has a lot of controls and the United States used to have those back like um, from Roosevelt up until the 80s, because they understood that if you let capitalism just do its thing, that um, it's going to make such vast inequality that you're gonna have a lot of people living on the streets, you're gonna have a lot of people not being able to take care of their children properly and, and and so on. And they know and also bottom line is you're not gonna have enough people who can buy the stuff you're trying to sell. You know, which is what keeps capitalism going. And that's one thing like, you know, if you look at the difference between in the 20th century and the 21st century, you look at what the Democratic Party does when they're in power and what the Republican Party does when they're in power. And and I'm actually, it's even, you know, the Democrats are much more interested in redistributing enough of the wealth to the working people and to the poor people, whether they're working or not, so that they can at least buy some of the goods that capitalism produces. Because if you don't, if you don't have people buying your goods, you get this, what's called overproduction, which creates a depression. And, you know, for the, when Reagan came in, they started pushing over, started selling things overseas and everything. And so that's what they did with their overproduction. But now, like, you know, countries like China and stuff, they most of the what they produce, they sell to their own people. But eventually they'll run into if they maintain, if they can continue to let capitalism lead the way without any um, breaks on it and redistribution of the wealth, you know, on some level, then they're going to run into the same situation that any any capitalist country runs into. Um, which, you know, you can look at Britain, you can look at the United States, you can even look at Germany, and because Germany's starting to see some of this too, as they relax their, the social welfare aspect of their governments, um, more money has gone to the top, and more people are, the, the economic stress has increased for more and more people who, even those people who are working one or two jobs and stuff, so I think if people look at it that way and, you know, if they're in a place that has a union or is interested in, in, you know, organizing the union, they should jump in because that's that's a good way to really, I think it's a really hands-on, direct way, personal way where one can learn the power that they have as when they get together and, you know, create organizations to kind of, if not overthrow capitalism, at least try to like make capitalism a little fairer than it, than its tendency is. I mean. Capitalism like a, is like a cancer. It, unless you unless you keep it at bay, it just consumes, consumes, consumes because that's its natural, you know, that's what it does. That's how it survives. And it's not it's not a moral thing. It's just the fact. <laughs> it's how money works under that system. So, Ron, I appreciate the time. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.